Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. of Japan podcast, episode 169, The Maelstrom, part 7. Okay, so last week we put a final nail in the coffin of the Port Arthur campaign, but that whole mess took months longer than it was supposed to, and it didn't even end until the start of 1905, so what was happening in the other theaters of war in the interim? Well, we left off with a Japanese advance on the city of Liaoyang, And by the way, since it's come up in a few emails, yes, I did skip a couple of battles in the lead-up to Liaoyang, but honestly, they all unfold in pretty much the same basic way. The Japanese move towards the city, the Russians fight a delaying action, and then they retreat. It's the oldest strategy in the Russian playbook, trade physical space for more time. After all, it's only a matter of time before the Russians assemble an overwhelming force And if there's one thing Russia has plenty of, it's space. Now, in late August 1904, Alexei Kropotkin was preparing to defend the city of Liaoyang to the south of the vital strategic center of Mukden. Not that Kropotkin thought this was a particularly good idea. He was under orders from the civilian viceroy of the Far East, Yevgeny Alexeyev, to fight a pitched battle, and was simply doing what he had been told to do. However, as we discussed two weeks ago, Kropotkin chose to make a stand at Liaoyang because it was expendable. He was not planning to launch an all-or-nothing attack, but wanted a secure line of retreat back to Mukden. The Japanese, under General Oyama Iwao, meanwhile, were thrilled for a chance at a clean, crushing victory over the Russians. So far, the Japanese had won every battle they'd engaged in, but the Russians always got away, and more often than not, Japanese casualties were equal to or even greater than Russian ones. That was obviously not a sustainable strategy. A clear, clean victory was what the Japanese needed, and if Kropotkin and company were dumb enough to hole up in a city, then hey, thanks for the freebie, guys. The commander for the Japanese forces was, again, Oyama Iwao, the same man who had drawn up the plan for the war before things had even gotten started. Now he was in charge of the drive towards Russian bases of power in Mukden and eventually Harbin. Oyama, remember, had been trained by the French back in the 1870s, using military textbooks that had been drawn up with the legacy of Napoleon very much in mind. Napoleon Bonaparte was big on encirclements, and his imitators were firm believers in this approach as well. Oyama inherited this idea. Against a fortified enemy position, the best thing to do was to always try and flank the opponent and attempt to encircle them. 
With that in mind, Oyama divided his forces into three parts. The first part was ordered to proceed directly at Liaoyang, more or less following the line of the railway track that connected Liaoyang to Port Arthur in the south. Group 2 was ordered to swing far north and come down behind the Russians. Group 3 was held in reserve, with orders to come in from a direction more or less halfway between Groups 1 and 2. So if you're painting a picture in your mind, imagine an assault from three angles, more or less the southwest, the southeast, and the northeast. By spreading out like this, the hope was to catch the Russians off guard and not only beat them, but cut off their line of retreat. The assault began on September 25th, with an artillery barrage followed by an assault by the first group. Which, by the by, is something we should talk about. Why in this age of machine guns and barbed wire do the Japanese just keep rushing forward over and over with these infantry attacks? Are they just idiots? To which I say, well, some of the senior commanders kind of are, because this is an army where seniority counts more than experience. Witness the bizarre shadow games that were being played in Port Arthur, with Kodama Gentaro calling the shots, even though technically no Yimareske remained in command. However, to a large extent, these commanders were not necessarily idiots, they were just doing what they had been trained to do, and what their counterparts in every major westernized military around the world were trained to do. And again, it all comes back to Napoleon. Now, Napoleon Bonaparte had climbed the ranks of the French army as an artilleryman and was certainly devoted to that branch of the service. However, most of his impressive victories were capped off not with cannon fire, but with fixed bayonets, ordering his troops to charge an enemy who would then panic and break in retreat. And since that's how Napoleon did it, it became the standard for every military trying to imitate his successes. Even a century after Waterloo, the textbook approach to warfare called for bayonet charges designed to send the enemy into retreat. However, the decisive bayonet charge had already started to falter by the 1870s, when German officers in the Franco-Prussian War noted that their own troops were being shot to hell when they tried to charge at the French. By the first decade of the 20th century, the odds were even more stacked against foot soldiers, a fact that Oyama belatedly discovered when his infantry assault was blown to hell by artillery from the Russians. Undiscouraged, Oyama tried a different tactic. That night, he ordered his forces forward in a nighttime assault. The thinking was that the Japanese could use the cover of night to get in close to the Russians and launch the attack before the defenders realized what was happening. But of course, we've already discussed the big problem with this one, the spotlight. Russian spotlights along their defensive line were more than adequate to the task of discovering the Japanese attack, and once it was uncovered, well, it's back to the old standby of just blow it up with some artillery. So all things considered, this is not going great for the Japanese. However, only two days after the initial attack, Kropotkin ordered the foremost defensive line be abandoned, and Russian troops retreat closer to the city. This retreat was designed to consolidate his position, but his senior commanders pointed out, correctly, that bunching up closer and closer would make the Russians more vulnerable to being surrounded by the Japanese. 
However, Kropotkin overruled their concerns. On August 27th, the outermost defensive line was abandoned. Now, in this moment, Oyama Iwao made a decision that has been labeled as a mistake by some, though I'm not sure it deserves to be referred to as such, and it all comes back to intelligence. Alexei Kropotkin did not have good intelligence assets on the ground in China, and as a result, he was working off some very faulty intel, suggesting that the Japanese force attacking him was bigger than his own army. This does a lot to explain his ultra-cautious approach, and decisions like abandoning his outer defensive line. If you're badly outnumbered, being spread out too thin means that you run the risk of an overwhelming attack against one point on your defenses. Thus, the smart play is to consolidate. Oyama, on the other hand, knew the reality of the situation. He had extremely good intelligence, coming primarily from sympathetic, or well-paid, or both, local Chinese, and he knew that far from outnumbering the Russians, the Russians actually outnumbered him. Now, attacks with a numerically inferior force are technically not impossible to make work, they can succeed, but they are far from standard. The usual rule of thumb, to my understanding, is that an attacking force should outnumber a defending force 3 to 1 to make up for the defender's advantage in possessing fortifications. Instead, Oyama was outnumbered 1 to 2, and therefore decided to call a halt to offensive operations for now. Instead, he sent a message down to General Nogi in Port Arthur, something to the effect of, Hey, how's that super easy campaign going? You guys are wrapping everything up down there, right? Oyama wanted Nogi, who he expected to already have taken Port Arthur, to come north with his forces and reinforce the attack on Liaoyang. Except, of course, that Nogi had not in fact taken Port Arthur and was nowhere close to wrapping things up by September 1904. When news came back a few days later that Nogi, far from having taken the city, was still attacking its outermost defenses and losing a lot of people doing it, Oyama was livid. He became one of the leaders most actively campaigning for Nogi to be removed from command. However, it became clear that was not going to happen, and so, on August 30th, Oyama, with no other good options open to him, ordered the offensives to resume. The second group of troops, which had been ordered to go north, circle around, and attack Liaoyang from the northeast, finally came into the action, sweeping south and attacking the railway line connecting Liaoyang to Mukden, and eventually to Harbin. Groups 1 and 3 also swung into action, attacking from the southwest and southeast. Once again, vicious Russian artillery fire caused huge numbers of Japanese casualties. However, once again... Kropotkin made a huge mistake by being overcautious. The Japanese were making headway with their attacks, but it was slow going. Commanders on the scene asked Kropotkin to commit reserve troops who had not yet been involved in the fighting. With fresh troops, the Russians could launch a counterattack, push the Japanese back, and buy themselves a lot of breathing room. Kropotkin, however, was still convinced by his bad intel that he was outnumbered. Sure, reports were drifting in from the front line that made it look like the Japanese didn't outnumber him and, in fact, that he outnumbered them, but obviously that was some clever Japanese trap. The Japanese wanted him to commit his reserves to a counterattack 
so that once he did, the Japanese could launch their own counterattack with their own hidden reserve and wipe out Kuropotkin's only ace in the hole. So instead, Kuropotkin ordered yet another retreat to the defensive lines just outside Liaoyang itself. Which I guess would have been smart, except, of course, there was no trap, there was no hidden Japanese reserve. And this is where Kuropotkin's bad reputation as a commander really starts to come into play. On a large-scale strategic level, he wasn't really that bad. His plan was not a terrible one. But as a tactical manager of individual battles, he had a really bad habit of psyching himself out. And it cost him here. Once Kuropotkin ordered the retreat, Oyama ordered Japanese artillery to relocate to the latest position taken from the Russians. With this latest advance, his guns could begin shelling the city of Liaoyang itself. Target number one for them was the city's rail station. If they could destroy the station, it would be much harder for the Russians to retreat along the rail line. At the same time, Oyama kept up the pressure by ordering another advance on the Russians, and here at last Kuropotkin found some backbone. A small river, you see, runs to the south of Liaoyang, and the Japanese now had to cross it to continue their advance. Kuropotkin saw an opportunity, wait for some Japanese troops to cross, and then launch an attack. With only part of their force across the river, it was pretty likely the Japanese could be forced to retreat. It's not particularly daring or original or likely to single-handedly win the battle, but hey, it's a plan. Except, of course, battles can get a little chaotic, and this one was no exception. The order to attack ended up getting lost in the mail, so to speak. In the early 20th century, orders were still generally transmitted to the front physically. They would be written out and taken to commanders on the front lines who would put them into practice. Kropotkin used a runner, a low-ranking soldier, to physically carry the order to counterattack to the front line. The runner, as it happened, got lost, and ended up wandering in circles for a couple of hours. By the time he'd actually found the place he was supposed to be going to, the Japanese were across the river. The opportunity was gone. Kuropotkin, probably now convinced he was cursed or something, decided to make one last try at defending Liaoyang. The Japanese artillery pieces with the best angle to fire on Liaoyang's train station were parked on a hill more or less to the east of the city, called Manjuyama by the Japanese, literally Manchu Hill. Kuropotkin ordered a counterattack on Manjuyama. Maybe if the Japanese could be pushed off it, he could buy a little more time to hold on to the city. The attack took place at night, and the Japanese had not brought things like spotlights with them on the march, and thus were not as prepared to spot and defend against night attacks as the Russians were. Initially, the attack, which began on the night of September 2nd, went pretty well, but then Kuropotkin's curse reared its head again. Night battles, you see, are pretty confusing stuff. Picture it. It's pitch black, you can't have any lights on you because it would make you a gigantic target, and in the early 20th century, both sides are wearing pretty dark, drab uniforms. With only the stars and your rough sense of where you are to guide you, it's pretty easy to get lost and pretty hard to see what you're doing. So when three of the attacking Russian battalions suddenly ran into each other, 
Each thought the other was a Japanese force, and the Russian troops all stopped where they were, and in the confusion, started shooting each other. Which, of course, alerted the Japanese to the fact that, hey, there are some people down there, and we're pretty sure they're not Japanese. As you might imagine, it all went downhill from there. Long story short, Russian counterattack broken up, Japanese hold on to Manjuyama, artillery pieces still shelling Liaoyang. So Kuropotkin gave the order to retreat. By September 5th, 1904, he was convinced that Liaoyang could not be held, and ordered his forces to begin an orderly, phased retreat towards Mukden. But wait, didn't the Japanese send a whole bunch of troops northeast to cut off the line of retreat to Mukden? Well, yeah, they did. And those troops even succeeded in taking part of the rail line between the two cities. However, the long, exhausting march, coupled with an attack on fortified Russian troops who had been put into place for just such an eventuality, meant that those Japanese troops were, to use the technical phrase, completely wiped. Thus, the Japanese were not really in a position to resist a breakout by the Russians. The majority of Russian forces in Liaoyang were able to punch through the Japanese who were supposed to keep them trapped and retreat. So in the end, where does that leave us? Well, literally in the same place that nearly every land battle in this damn war has left us. The Japanese hold the field of battle, but the Russians retreat intact and in good order. In fact, basically the only exception to that pattern I can think of is the Battle of Port Arthur, because there's nowhere for the Russians to retreat to other than literally into the ocean. So, far from being the decisive battle hoped for by both Viceroy Alexeyev and Field Marshal Oyama, Liaoyang was yet another indecisive slapfest. Both sides took around 20,000 casualties, neither one was able to accomplish their strategic objective. Now, once he escaped, Alexei Kropotkin claimed victory at Liaoyang because he'd yet again been able to put into place his basic strategy. He'd bled the Japanese, given up a little space, and avoided any decisive encounter that would result in his forces being wiped out. Kropotkin even sent a telegram back to the Russian capital in St. Petersburg, where he claimed a great victory over the Japanese. After all, they'd thrown a massive force at him. His intelligence had told him he was badly outnumbered, and he'd still gotten away and hurt the Japanese doing so. So truly a great victory. Except, of course, I successfully ran away without many losses is not exactly cause to break out the champagne. When Kropotkin's telegram arrived in St. Petersburg, it was greeted not with celebration, but with jokes. Who did this idiot think he was to go around claiming that not losing is somehow the same thing as winning a big victory? Kropotkin continued to withdraw towards Mukden, and here one of the biggest weaknesses of his position became apparent. It had to deal with all of those unsexy bits of preparation that most people don't really think about when it comes to warfare. In particular, maps. Kropotkin, you see, wanted to make one more stand against the Japanese before they reached Mukden. The ancient capital of the Qing dynasty was now, with the siege of Port Arthur, Russia's forwardmost functional base. Its loss would be a huge problem for the Russians because it would force them to retreat most of the way to Harbin 
and give up a huge amount of ground in the process. Unfortunately for Kropotkin, his ability to scheme out a defensive Mukden was badly hindered by a lack of good maps. One of the responsibilities of the garrison that had been in Manchuria before the start of the war had been to draft up-to-date maps of Manchuria for use by Russian forces in the field. However, most of the officers tasked with doing so had minimal training in the more technical aspects of war. The officer corps of Tsarist Russia was packed with aristocrats who had gotten their commissions based off of birth, not merit, and who were not interested in running around making maps, thank you very much, there is no glory in cartography. Kropotkin had, during his tenure as Minister of War, tried to reverse this trend by changing up the officer training programs for the Russian army, but he'd been prevented from doing so by a combination of political pressure from old-timers and lack of funds. Nobody wants to put all those great new French loans into boring things like map-making. Why would we do that when we can buy shiny things like guns and artillery pieces and railroads? So when Kropotkin was planning his defense of Mukden, he was working off of hugely inadequate maps. As you might imagine, it made planning an effective defense pretty hard. The Japanese, by contrast, used their network of Chinese spies throughout Manchuria to develop extremely effective maps of the region. They'd also infiltrated Japanese officers into the local population to map out Russian fortifications and supply depots. This is one of those advantages that's a little hard for us to think about today because in the age of satellite mapping, the vast majority of those of us who live in the first world have access to perfectly accurate maps on demand literally in our pockets. However, when you're trying to organize tens of thousands of soldiers with thousands of pounds of munitions and food and hundreds of field guns in tow, knowing exactly where you're going is pretty damn important. All of this put Kropotkin in a real bind. He needed to reverse the tide of the war. If he kept losing ground like this, there was a real chance of losing Mukden, and that would be a huge problem. However, his imperfect knowledge of local terrain made planning a counterattack very difficult. Eventually, he settled on using a river along the Japanese line of advance as the spot to make a stand. That river, the Sha River, cut across the road along which the Japanese troops were advancing towards Mukden. The terrain around the river was mostly flat, with some hills to the west. Kuropotkin hoped to attack the Japanese as they crossed the river and pinned them in place, at which point Russian troops hidden in those western hills would launch a counterattack. All in all, it's not the worst plan ever devised, and when Kuropotkin sprung the trap on October 5th, 1904, Initially, Field Marshal Oyama Iwao did not realize what was happening. He'd been advancing very cautiously, in anticipation of some kind of resistance. Actually, it had taken him a month to get this far. But the idea that the Russians would try and counterattack instead of just inflicting some losses and running away again like they had every other time didn't seem to have crossed his mind. So Kuropotkin might have actually been poised to win a great victory except that, of course, then his curse reared its head again. A Russian officer with orders in his pocket that included discussion of the counterattack was shot dead during the early part of the fighting. His body was recovered by the Japanese, 
who then deciphered the orders and realized what was going on, allowing Oyama the time to redeploy his line to prevent the Russian attack from catching him in the flank. And thus Kuropotkin's grand plan for a counterattack that would send the Japanese running back south sputtered out. With his plan in shambles, Kuropotkin reverted back to form. He retreated back to a defensive formation and started trying to trade space for time and buy as long as he could. However, now Kuropotkin's bad relationship with his subordinates started to become more of an issue. He'd ordered a counterattack in part to convince them that he was not an entirely passive commander, but now here he was again, being entirely passive. His officers felt he'd given up the offense too soon, and Kuropotkin knew that they increasingly distrusted his leadership. That was especially true of the senior commanders, the people directly underneath him. This is a big problem to have, because these were the people responsible for taking Kuropotkin's general orders, defend position X until Y occurs, that kind of thing, and translating them into specific plans of action. If they could not be trusted, Kuropotkin could not engage in real strategic planning. Unfortunately, Kuropotkin's plan to deal with this lack of trust was, let's call it, suboptimal. Kuropotkin simply ignored his senior commanders. Instead, he began giving orders to field units directly. And this created a bizarre situation where field units were getting two sets of orders, one from their direct commanders, one from the senior commander in the field. To make things worse still, while Kuropotkin was generally a modernizer, there was one piece of technology he had little patience for, field telephones. So, as we've established already, he relied on runners with written orders, meaning that often field units would be in the middle of carrying out one set of orders before Kuropotkin's different contradictory orders arrived, which of course is not exactly an ideal scenario. After two weeks on the defense, Kuropotkin's troops were on the ropes again. Their ammunition supplies were running out, the Japanese under Oyama had taken several of the western hills, and there the Japanese were setting up artillery and blasting the Russian defenses. By October 13th, Kuropotkin ordered a retreat towards Mukden. In the end, his attempt at a counterattack had cost him just under 40,000 killed, wounded, or missing, out of a force of just over 200,000. It had bought him all of two weeks. Next week, we'll discuss the climactic land battle of the war, the Battle of Mukden. Japan's advance continues, but time is running out and losses are piling up. Can the war in Manchuria actually be won, or is the Imperial Army chasing an unattainable goal and falling into one of the great blunders, getting involved in a land war in Asia? For now, though, that's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. Special thanks to Adam Harris for donating to support the show, and to Corey Mendel for donating and for, what, 17 years of friendship now, above and beyond the call of duty. To join them, to find out more about this week's episode and any other episode, or to submit ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at www.historyofjapan.wordpress.com or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapanpodcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week for The Maelstrom, Part 8.
Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, oh, oh.